0: It has been brought to our attention that depending on the platform that you listen to, you can no longer hear some of our previous episodes.
1: Some of our favorite episodes.
0: Some of the ones where people would reach out and say, hey, listen, I can't believe that you talk to insert whatever name here.
1: And honestly, it makes us a little sad that you can't go back in time and have a listen because the stories were really incredible.
0: We reference a lot of times, oh, we had a chance to talk with so-and-so in the past. And if you can't go back, then it's kind of just, oh. So we wanted to bring some of those Guests, some of those former guests, back into the spotlight.
1: We're gonna call it like a, a rerun, I
0: think. A Why Me project rerun. Do you remember those? I do. Back in the day, or you used to throw the tape into the VCR, and <laughs> oh, we're dating ourselves.
1: We are, but uh, a rerun was the opportunity to rewatch one of your favorite episodes. Now everything's so accessible. Well, we thought it was.
0: Yeah, exactly. So without further ado...
1: Here's your Why Me Project rerun.
0: Ted Decker, my friend, how are you?
2: Awesome. I'm so glad to meet you. You know, I'm a I'm, I'm fellow Canadian. I, I live in the United States, but I have a Canadian passport.
1: What part of Canada were you born in?
2: Well, I wasn't born in Canada. I was born in Indonesia amongst cannibals in the middle of the jungle. But my parents had become Canadian for, for, you know so they could travel easily. I'm definitely a world citizen and it's like, uh... Where are my people? Um, I don't know. Okay, here are my people. I'm kind of like that little bird saying, "Are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? (laughs) Yeah, that's me. That's me, baby. I'm just like, well, who the heck am I? I I, I don't belong anywhere. Which has actually been really, really uh, difficult at times, but an an amazing gift. I wouldn't be able to write without that kind of disorientation from any particular cultural bubble. So I've kind of, I've, I've never been able to root myself within a particular cultural bubble, which allows me to observe all cultures from a very unique perspective. Meaning, from Outer space, kind of. I write out of that, out of that context, out of that perspective. Usually,
0: we ask the question, "Who are you and where did you come from?" But you kind of answered all of that. Did you do a whole lot of traveling as a kid?
2: Yeah, we were bounced around a lot. So, um, you know, one of the most unique experiences I had was um, when I was six years old, I was sent off to a boarding school. So, my parents were in the jungle where I where I was born and raised up until the age of six and then sent off to an international school. Of course, as a six-year-old, I felt completely and utterly abandoned, and I cried myself to sleep for months and months, and, you know, came to the final realization that, you know, I was abandoned by my father. And so that set my whole life on a certain trajectory. I bounced around a lot to school and the back in the jungle, and then to Canada or the United States, and then back to Indonesia, and then back, 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 back. I was constantly bouncing around. And that, to me, was far more informative, and, you know, that that actually formed me much more than some of the traumatic events that were happening around me in the jungle. Like, my parents were missionaries. The, the cannibals killed and ate my parents' co-workers when I, was, when I was six years old. But that meant nothing to me. To me, I was abandoned, and I was totally, utterly alone. So who cared who was eating who? It, it, that really didn't impact me that much. But that, you know, books have been written about that episode, me, I was just trying to discover my identity in the world as a small child and have been ever since.
1: What I find really fascinating is that here you're a missionary kid and your parents are spreading the gospel about how much God is always there for you and around you. And yet you felt like your own father abandoned you.
2: You hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's like I've come to discover so many things about what it means to be the son of the father here in this in this incarnation, in this world. And I, I think I, I think I've been... I, I know I've been on a search my entire life for who my father actually is. You know, Jesus said, call no man on earth father, for your father is in heaven. You know, we kind of, we don't, we're not quite sure what to do that. He also taught, unless you hate your mother, your father, your children, your spouse, your wife, you cannot, in, indeed, your entire life, you cannot follow me into the kingdom of heaven, into this experience of this, uh, called the kingdom, which is here now and among us. But we look at those passages and we think, well, those are awful harsh. What do we do with those? Actually, they're the most beautiful teachings imaginable once you begin to understand what He's inviting us into. To your point, Holly, I mean, I I was given a gift of being separated from my father when I was very young. So that I could take this journey of discovering who my father was, meaning my source, my, my origin, my father, God. It kind of forced me into this path that I've been taking ever since. And uh, it's been a really, really beautiful journey. So I counted it as a real gift. I didn't at the time, but now I see, look back and I see the beauty of it.
0: So you're born of missionaries, but when was faith really uh, kind of yours? I could see as a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, well, why would God allow something like this to happen?
2: faith is a very, very interesting and rather deep topic. We, we've, we're really, we simplify it. We think, well, faith in what? We put our faith in many things all the time, and whatever we put our faith in binds us to that. So when did I come into faith? Well, I'm coming into faith now. This is not a little decision you make somewhere who says, oh, I'm into this group. I'm going to jump over into this bucket. Now I'm this. Well, actually, what's changed? You know, maybe a few beliefs, but your life is still the same. In fact, what, what I observed all around me with all the missionaries, and all, I was steeped in Christianity and, and, and heroes of the, quote, faith growing up. And I saw very quickly that they were no different than the Muslims we were, we, we were serving. The manifestation of the love that Jesus said would be, would be present among those who followed him were not necessarily evident anymore amongst those, those who called themselves Christians and those who called themselves Muslims. And they had different beliefs in terms of the next life and how to get into some kind of paradise in the next life, and uh, they characterized that paradise in a slightly different way. But the manifestation of the life, which is love—and I always knew this, there is no fear in love, and yet I experience fear, and so do my parents, in, in drastic measures. So they're not in love, and love is the primary evidence of following being in the Kingdom, of following Jesus. I also know this, that love holds no record of wrong, and yet I see people holding record of wrong all around me, whether they're Muslim or Christian. So these people then have not yet discovered love. I must not either have. This is just my reasoning as a young child, I mean, you know, probably my early teens, are we following Jesus? What, where is our faith? Where, who are we? Have we awakened to our true identity? Are we still bound by an old identity that keeps us locked in an old paradigm? And by the way, who am I? Where is my faith? Is it in my father? And which father am I putting my faith in? Why, have I awakened to my true identity or am I still lost in this world and just calling myself a Christian?
0: If you felt abandoned by your dad, how is your relationship with your father now?
2: Beautiful, beautiful question. And what I've discovered in life is that I've gone through cycles of a great awakening. And I think that all the listeners, everyone listening to me right now and listening to you and you, both you, Johnny and Holly, we go through these cycles where we have great we step into this great awakening of our identity. And and in and in those moments, sometimes it's just moments, maybe in the middle of a a worship service or just on our by ourselves out in the, on a field or you know, wherever, wherever we are, we have this sudden, and all the cares and concerns of the world just fall away. And I would call that an awakened state where suddenly we're just in complete peace and we, we are experiencing the wonder of the Kingdom. The Kingdom meaning that which is within us, that which is at hand now, which is, which is the Kingdom of Light and Love, which is not something in the future, but now, it's eternal life now, and we awaken to that. And then the cares and the concerns of the world choke it out, and we, we get lost again. And then we go back. So it's like life is cycles of remembering and forgetting. So to your point, I mean, especially, I, I write to discover. I write to discover my own identity. And I write, and I write using primarily fiction because it's a very powerful way to, to do that. In many gritty stories, but they're very, very authentic and real, real stories. In that process, I go through this, this process of remembering who I am and abiding in that identity as the Son of the Father, then the cares and concerns of the world can easily choke it out. And as I've continued it through my process, I begin to let go more and more and more of my identity as simply an earthen vessel in this, in this reality, and seeing myself more as, as a divine being, as the Son of my Father, you know, because of the work of Jesus, because of his, the resurrection and my resurrection in Him. So I, to answer your question, where am I right now? Well, it kind of depends on the day, yes? I mean, let's be honest with each other. It's like, Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Am I seeing the kingdom to the, to the degree that I'm seeing right now the kingdom? The kingdom, for me, is the manifestation of God's glory in all things, seeing light rather than darkness. And it's here. We know that. Jesus said, they said, the Pharisees said, where is this kingdom you keep talking about? When is it coming? He said, it's not coming with signs, because the kingdom is already within you. And he was speaking to the lowest of the low. The greatest of all sinners, in his particular point of view, which were Pharisees, he, he said, the light, you are the light of the world, he taught the people, but you've covered it up with another identity. So the light is the kingdom. Well, that's his language for it. All of his teaching was about this kingdom, which is now, it's like we're multidimensional beings, you see. And we identify with ourselves primarily as earthen vessels, like simply in form. Well, we don't negate that form, like the Gnostics used to. We actually embrace it. It, This is a beautiful gift we have, and we're expressing ourselves through this form, but we primarily identify with that form at the exclusion of, of our divine nature. It depends on the hour of the. Day. I'm just honest about it. Am I born again? My mom says, "Well, are you born again?" I said, "Well, it depends on the hour of the day." I'm, I mean, I'm just being real with her. I'm yeah. saying, you know, it's a language. We, we've turned it into some form of law and some some kind of codified structure, and said, "Oh, this is what it means to be born again." If you say this prayer and you do these things, boom, you're in, and that's it. If you're not experiencing love, you're not actually you're not actually living as a, a child and being born again in that. You're not born again in that in that in that moment. You're actually back to the old way of being. I, I could be wrong about that, but there's certainly no danger in being wrong with that, because my journey is to constantly be born, to, to abide in that, in that born-again state. And my Father never condemns me. The Father judges no one, Jesus said. So it's not like he's going, shame on you. Never, never, never. My Father has never condemned me. I'm the only one who condemns me. And the accuser condemns me, but never my Father. He would never do that to his child.
1: I'm looking at your bio right now, and I just find it really fascinating how, I mean, this is kind of your, your approach on faith, how you were raised, and then there's that you know, season of your life where you were in university and, and studying philosophy and religion, and then you dived into a, a corporate world, which seems kind of, it seems like a not a, just a position from... <laughs> kind Of where you were and where you are, and yet, dead smack in the middle, you know, you're doing stuff in the corporate world. Did that feel like a good fit for you, or did you just know in your heart that there was something different for you?
2: Great question, Holly. I, you know, it's funny. Um, I laughed a little bit and said that because I came to a point, um, in my life in my early 20s, I was here in the United States, I'd come back from the, the jungles, I, was, I went to college. Actually, I went to Trinity Western University for one year, but then I, then I went to Bible school. I was trying to discover myself. I went to Bible school. I, all these things never they didn't fit. And then I, I got married at a young age, again, uh, kind of a desperate attempt for me to find someone to find meaning, right, in someone else. I, I felt really, out, as an out, I felt as an outsider. No matter where I went, I, I didn't fit. And so I felt rejected on something, so many levels, you know, like uh, something's wrong with me. And so... I came to a point in my life in my early 20s where it's like, okay, I'm either going to leave this country and go back, or I'm going I'm to become a missionary, or something like that, right? Or I'm going to embrace this Western lifestyle, and I'm going to pursue the American dream instead of condemning it. And so I threw myself into business, and I was very successful very quickly. And I began to pursue the, quote, American dream, meaning I'm going to play the, ru- the game by the rules of Western culture. And that's where you saw that shift and I became very successful. And at the height of that success, I completely fell apart. And that was about 10 years ago. My success brought me to the end of myself, so to speak, right? I could no longer live with myself, but which self? Well, that small structure called the earthen vessel self. So this too was a great gift to me, that great success and failure, you know? Uh, but that's why I pursued that. That's why I pursued success, is because everybody around me was. And I said, okay, let's try it that way. And uh, I learned a lot in that process.
0: You got married at a young age. Was that something that was a strain on your marriage because you guys were so young?
2: Probably, yeah. Marriage will reveal to you all of your greatest fears. This person in front of you who you're madly in love with at one point you know, will soon fail you and will stop reflecting to you what you need from this partner to give you honor and significance and value. And in that process, you blame them, right? But really, it's your own identity is shattered, and you have you've, you've leaned on them to give you significance. And it's all fine as long as they are, but as soon as they, quote, misbehave, or they're no longer, quote, honoring you the way, or loving you the way you want to be loved, or looking the way you want them to look, you're back in hell. So we use our partners as mirrors. They've become small gods to us, through our addictive clinging to them. We use them as drugs without knowing it. Of course, when you're very young, you know you no know, know better. In fact, many people never know any better. But, yeah, for me, I, to- I got married as a means of salvation. In other words, by salvation, whenever I talk about salvation, I think about finding finding peace in troubled waters or being able to sleep during the storm. That's salvation to me, being saved from the storms of this life. Um, I don't think of it in terms of the next life, although that's true, too. But I think of Jesus' teaching primarily attributed to this life. He's teaching us how to find peace and love and joy in this life you know now the kingdom of heaven is now it is here the eternal life is now and it is knowing the father it is having yeah it is having union with an experience of the father experiential knowing of the father of your source so i've used a marriage to discover that instead of my identity with my source or with the father
0: when did you realize that you had a passion for writing and that you could make being a writer, a career?
2: I saw a friend of mine write a book, and it wasn't a very good book, but I thought, <laughs> wow, if he can write a novel... Because I grew up writing novels because I didn't have any television or anything like that. I was, you know, I, I was, my first memory of, like, a, a book that just shook my world, and I thought, wow, if I could write like this, there would be... If I could make other people feel this way, the way I'm feeling right now that would be so amazing. And that was a book called The Stand by Stephen King when I was like eight or nine years old. But I just loved it. It's a big, huge, spiritual uh, allegory that Stephen wrote. And I remember feeling that at a young age, but it wasn't until my late 20s that I contemplated the idea of actually writing a novel. So I I owned a business at the time, and I said, I'm going to do this. Actually, I started writing in the evenings. And uh, it, it was just like, wow, I got lost in this world. For me, it was an escape into another bubble, right? At that time, it was like, wow, everything makes sense in this world. I'm going to go and create this world, call it like a fictive bubble. So I started doing that in the evenings, and I, it was so taken by it that I thought, I'm going to sell my business. I owned a business at the time, sell it, and I'm going to do this full time, and I'm going I'm to become an author. I did that. Sold my business, and I wrote full on it. And I completed a novel after like, I don't know, five, six months it was a junk novel. I, I showed it to an agent and I got an agent to look at it and they just trashed it. So I thought, well, crap. I mean, that was a low point because I had spent so much time in it. So I said, I threw it in the drawer and I went back, I bought another business. But after two years of running another business, I just could not get away from the draw. So I sold that business and I said, I'm just going to do this. And for the next five, six years, I just wrote novel after novel after novel. And finally um, I, I managed to get a public, an agent which took a long time. And then that agent kept submitting my novels. They kept getting rejected, you know, rejected, rejected, rejected. And finally, I wrote a novel. I said, okay, I'm writing stuff that's too dark for these people. I'm writing stuff that's, you know, too this, too that. I'm going to write the kind of novel they want to write. So I wrote a novel that, they, you know, in their language, meaning in the language of the Americans. And I was writing for Christians at the time. And so I did that, and I wrote a novel, and I got three offers on it. Mm-hmm. And my career began... Well, my paid career began then. It was like euphoria. And I've been, that was 40 novels, 40 novels ago. And my, it was just, it's been a steady climb ever, ever since that point.
1: Was there at any point during those early years that you just thought, okay, maybe this isn't, isn't working for me. I need to go back to buying another business.
2: Oh my gosh. (laughs) How many times? I mean, look, you guys, let's be real, right? You both, you you think you've thought the same thing in many different aspects of your life. This is just too hard. We encounter that kind of that sentiment frequently in our lives. It's okay. We don't need to pretend that, you know, we have it all together and we're all on the perfect career. You know? No, actually, we frequently question our lives, and I did as well. Writing a novel is like, you know, climbing Mount Everest every time I write a novel. You know, you lose some fingers. It's like extremely difficult. And then you finish it, and then you're like, yeah, whew. I mean, I don't want to do that again. It's almost like, I, you know... Okay, I'm not doing that again, but then a few months later it's like, "Ah, you know what? You start buying gear again and you start warming up to it or you're under contract and you have to." And then you're like, "I mean, I went through a period of time, maybe 3 or 4, maybe for oh, maybe 2 years, where every time I sat down at the computer, literally in the mornings, I was so despising of it. Mm. My 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 fingers were just shaking. You guys, I was in utter complete hell. I had millions of fans out there that expected me and they were like, great praise of my novels and my significance now, I'd shifted it from my marriage to my, to my writing. Now my significance, that became another mirror. And as long as I could live up to the expectations of the world in this Christian marketplace, then I would be somebody. I would be, be important. I mean, this is a, a deep, 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 deep root in me. You know, fear of rejection and needing to belong, you see. And so I sold myself to that process and it brought me to the point of complete breaking because my father was calling me out into an awareness of my who I always had been as his son, my my, my heavenly father. Mm. Yes, Holly. I mean, I often said I can't do I can't do this anymore, and I finally came to a point, actually, only about five years ago, where I just <clears throat> just kind of let go, and I just gave my contracts back, and I let everything go, and in in that space of emptiness, actually, was born the 49th mystic. That, that happened about two years ago, uh, but the breaking began about five years ago. The 49th mystic represents my final, not final, but my great breaking and letting go of all that I thought I was. I, I had this vision where I was visited by the Holy Spirit in a very, very dramatic way. I was told very, very clearly, in a very beautiful, gentle way, let go of all that you think you know to know me. And I just fell to my knees and began to weep, you know, because there's so many things we think we know, that we think we need. So many things, you know, our entire beliefs of the world are are constructed really in in a system of fear and control. And it's actually finally when we let go, this is what Jesus means when he says, unless you deny yourself. It's not a renunciation as much as as a letting go of your identity in one system in order to be born into another system like a little child, like an infant. And, and that happened in a very dramatic way for me, uh, and really, in the last five, seven years. And out of that has come the 49th Mystic, which is really that journey.
0: When we talk to artists and uh, you know, they say, oh, the best album yet, or this is my favorite one, you've written so many books now, what do you hope people get out of your new book?
2: I hope people will see themselves for the first time. Look, this is a book written for Christians. I mean, non-Christians, could can love it. I mean, my stories are great. There's there's stories. But this, more than probably any book I've written, is written to my peers. Christians like me were brought up in, in a religion called Christianity and yet still feel lost, lost meaning when, not, not, not socially or culturally lost, but they're like, wait a second, how come um, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name will be done? Why do I not see that? What's happening? Either I'm misinterpreting that completely, or I'm not asking in his name. And what does it mean to ask in his name? These are the deep questions, right? There is no fear in love. I experience fear all the time. Am I not in love? Love is the evidence of being in the, lo- in the light of the Gospel, Love is the evidence of being born again, of the love, not just any love, but a love that holds no record of wrong. What does that mean? In this novel, and Rise of the Mystics, which is the, comes out in October, just four months after it, it, it is a, a, a total re-examination of the heart of Jesus' teachings in a way that, that invites us into a whole new way to see our lives as Christians. Because most Christians, like myself, are utterly lost and yet think they're found. You know, we they, 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 they experience ourselves still cast out, on them, and our hope is in some future life. But right now, we're still lost and struggling and struggling and struggling. Is there a way to awaken to our true identity now? And that's what this whole book is about. So my hope is that it would give people permission to be to. It's kind of like a, it's it's like a it's like the Reformation, a whole new way to look at what Jesus was teaching. There's no heresy in it. It's not new thoughts necessarily. Theologically, it's, but within story, it's a, it's a complete paradigm shift that invites us all into a way that is uh, the, way, the way of love, actually, the way of love, the love that holds no record of wrong.
1: Now, as you uh, kind of look back over your life, um, highs and lows, those why-me moments, is there any that you can just kind of bookmark for us that just really were poignant?
2: Why was I born the son of missionaries and abandoned at the age of six. Why must I live in a culture where I am a stranger? Why do I not have a home? Why am I, I, am, am I in this body? Why did I come to this earth? I mean, these are the questions that began haunting me at ages six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Why is there evil? Why do I suffer? You know, so why me? But why did, Why am I in the Jesus has this really beautiful story where they come come across a blind man, and the disciples ask him, Master, tell us, why was this man born blind? In other words, they're saying, why is there such, such suffering in this man's life? To be blind in that day, everyone would believe, well, it's the consequence of sin, and so he deserved it. And, but why was he born blind? Like, he had no choice in the matter. Was it his sin in some prior, some prior experience that caused him to be born blind, they asked? Or was it his father's sin, meaning his father, or their father, or forefathers, or all the way back to Adam? I mean, whose fault was it? They're asking, why is there suffering in this world? And Jesus says, neither, it was neither him, it was neither his sin nor anyone else's sin that caused him to be born blind. Rather, he was born blind so that the work of God might be made visible inside of him. In other words, we all come into a world of suffering, of polarity, so that we might discover the light that's already within us. It's called the kingdom of heaven, by the way. So that's, there's a great purpose. And then Jesus continues to say, we must all do this work while it is day, meaning in this life, because night is coming, death is coming. And you came. You're in this. You're in this world of polarity, of up and down, of the knowledge of good and evil, to discover the light in the darkness. Why do I suffer? Why did I marry somebody? I asked for many years. That really, I did. That, that you know, out of desperation at such a young age. Why didn't I experience more of life? Why, why? Oh my goodness! The whys are. so, I'm cursed with with the question of why. How about you guys? Do you guys ask why me?
1: Oh, quite frequently, and that's why we have this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's just always nice to know that you're not alone on that quest and asking those questions, and I think it's a healthy thing to do.
0: I think so, too. And it's amazing to see how God brings us out in the end with those why me moments.
2: The law is weak and useless, Hebrews teaches us, right? The law is the power of sin itself. The law came so that transgression might increase. And yet it's our schoolmaster. So it's like a brick wall, the law, the should, the should nots, all that. I should be this way. Why am I not good enough? This is all the accuser of the law. And you hit your head against it. You hit your head against it. You just keep trying to break through it and kind of succeed to your own righteousness or whatever. But in that process, you finally, finally, finally begin to surrender and then say, forget it. And then you surrender into this thing called grace right because the law can never save you it is weak and useless it is powerless but it is a beautiful teacher paul calls it a schoolmaster it's kind of like it teaches us because the harder we try the more we fail and so finally we learn we cannot through our own beliefs actions through our own effort we cannot know ourselves ultimately as the sons and daughters of the father it is only through it's only through, by surrendering from that into the law of grace. And that is, that's not just theology. It's like surrendering into the light of love and stop, stop judging the world, my friends, because what you judge, judges you back. We judge, 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 judge all kinds of things. And we justify all those judgments. But whenever we cut somebody with a sword, we're only stabbing ourselves. We, We wonder why we're walking around like a wounded animal, because we keep stabbing ourselves by judging others, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and when, that, when you start realizing that, the whys begin to fall away, Love the why-me's begin to fall away, and suddenly you begin to see, oh, that's how it's working. Now it's just a matter of awakening into it and living it and abiding in that vine of truth, um, and your journey begins to change radically at that point.
0: At Ted Decker on Twitter and Instagram. We appreciate you taking a minute to uh, talk with us today, my friend.
2: Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon.